Now, this morning, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, I just want to look at the first six verses. A lot of truth here, but just those six. And then next Sunday, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll finish out the rest of the chapter. This morning, the title for the message that I'd like you to focus and think on is How Faithful Is Your Faith? How Faithful Is Your Faith? And I'll I'll explain that here. That sounds like an odd question. How faithful is your faith? Because what I'm not asking you to think about is how faithful are you individually? How faithful is your service? I'm not asking those. I'm using the word faith. How faithful is your faith? How faithful is your faith in Christ? Now, that does lead into other questions. How faithful is your faith would then mean, okay, well, how committed is your faith? How strong is your faith? And then, yes, that does go into action. How strong is your service because of your faith? So service and faith go together. I'm not asking you today, how much do you serve in the church? I'm not asking you, how much do you serve in your workplace or wherever you go? I'm not asking those things. But I do want to say this, though. Service to Christ is, at least it should be, it should be a direct outflow of how strong your faith in Him is. A weak faith will typically breed a weak service. A weak faith will typically breed a weak relationship, a weak following of Him in your day-to-day life. So, but let's start at sort of the fountainhead stream of this river of faith. And it's just to ask this, how faithful is my faith, my personal faith in Jesus Christ? How faithful is it? Am I putting my faith in the right beliefs? Am I putting my faith in the right Savior? Let's start there. But if you'd say, yes, I have faith in Christ, well then, am I putting my faith in the right beliefs about Jesus? Am I putting my faith in the right beliefs about the church and the Bible and all these things we're to believe as Christians? And then, yes, that ends us up at the next place, How faithful am I in my outflow of service to my Lord? So with that in mind this morning, that's how I want us to think about this passage. This the letter to Hebrews here, what he's going to do, he's going to shift to another claim for us about Jesus. You see, we've spent several messages in chapter two. You're probably tired of hearing it, but it's just what he did. He talked over and over about Jesus is greater than the angels. Well, now he's going to shift and say, now, guess what? Jesus is greater than someone else. I'm just going to tell you who it is. It's Moses. So now today he's going to say, Jesus is greater than Moses. The reason, again, I believe, is his audience was probably Jews, actual ethnic Jews, followers of the Jewish religious system, the Old Testament. They loved the angels of God. They loved Moses. They loved the prophets. They loved reading the Old Testament and following the law. So he's writing to a group of Jews who have converted to Christ. They're now Christians. They believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior the Jewish Messiah, so Jesus was Jewish too, so he's writing to this type of a Christian audience, I believe, and trying to encourage them to keep their focus where it should be kept. Their focus should not be kept on the angels or Moses or Isaiah, Jeremiah, as important as they were, their focus should be fully kept on Jesus, the Messiah. So today he's going to give another argument of Well, guess what? Jesus is greater than Moses. You love Moses. Moses was important. He was special. But Jesus is greater than Moses. That was the last sermon was called Why Jesus Came to Earth. And I won't go through all that, but it leads into verse one here today. 
This is the issue, by the way, whenever I told you guys when you interviewed me, I preach expositional sermons verse by verse. There's an issue why you have to have long introductions because it's hard to break these passages apart to have a start and an end. Because where we're going to start today, chapter 3, verse 1, he says the word therefore. Well, therefore links what he's about to say with everything he just said in chapter 2. But I can't go all the way back through chapter 2. But I just want you to know these letters were meant to be read in one sitting. But here we are breaking them up in pieces, trying to go through them. So I just want you to know it gets to be a little difficult or else we would be here for hours and we're not going to do that. But I just want you to know chapter 3, verse 1, he starts with therefore. And we need to remember, well, what's he referring to? Everything he just said in chapter 2 and the highlights were, why did Jesus come to earth? Well, he came to earth to humble himself to become a real human being. Not some angel that looked like a human, not some spirit that looked like a human. It was God who set aside his glory in heaven and become a living, breathing, real human with flesh and bones and blood flowing through his body, born of a real earthly mother. Why did he do that, though? Because he didn't come to save dogs or cats or bears or trees. He came to save human beings. So he had to be made like a human in order to be their savior. That's why he came. And then he said other things like he has become our great high priest, meaning he represents us to God. Jesus died to pay for our sins so he could present us before God as holy people and not sinful wretches deserving God's judgment. So these are all the things Jesus did while he set aside glory temporarily to come to earth, to be a human, to be a man. And so then in verse 18 of chapter 2, he ended with this, because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So now he made it practical and said, you and I as Christians can look to Jesus and not just see him as our savior, which is true. You can see him as a person who can empathize with your situation in life. When you're being tempted and tried and you have a besetting sin that you struggle with. Now, Jesus was without sin, but make no mistake about it, he was really tempted to sin by Satan himself. So he says, listen, you can look to Jesus and he actually knows what you're going through. He can sympathize and empathize with you because he's gone through the human life, the human existence. So that's where chapter two ended. And now he picks up and says, OK, now, therefore. So there's something we need to learn because of everything he's just tried to tell us about what Jesus has done in chapter two. So again, here's how I want us to think through this section. How faithful is your faith? How faithful is your faith? How faithful, faithful is your belief in Christ? How faithful is your, your service in Christ? So today's message from Hebrews is going to be for us to focus on the example of Jesus. And as, as we walk through this, I want us to ask ourselves these questions. Is my faith real? And if my faith is real, am I focused on the right things? Is my faith focused on the right things? Am I serving Christ in a way that honors him as my Lord and Savior? Now, that leads to other practical questions, not just about faith, but just think about your life. And we would need to ask ourselves things like, is my life focused on the right things? Or have I been making my life about things of this world and things that they might be important, but they're not eternally important? They're not important for the kingdom of God. Have I been busy doing the things of this world and things that just selfishly mean a lot to me? but they don't really show that I'm focused on serving Christ. So let's look here at Hebrews chapter 3. And if you would, out of respect for the reading of God's word, please stand with me 
And I want to read this passage, verse 1 through 6. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let me pray again for a moment now. Lord, thank you for your written word. It means so much to me and I'm sure everyone here, Lord, as Christians, this is the truth you've given us on paper, words on paper, to know your thoughts, your mind, to know how to live in a way that pleases you. And God, thank you for that. And now, Lord, please help me to just make much of your word in a way that, Holy Spirit, you'll speak to every heart and mind here, that they'll learn truth from it, that we'll be changed by it as we leave here today. And in Jesus' name, I pray all these things. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated now. So here's, here's our point. How faithful is your faith? And let's start with the first point. Here's what the author is going to say from Hebrews here. How do I first sort of self-inventory how faithful my faith is? And he's going to say this. Pay attention to Jesus. Pay attention to Jesus. In verse 1, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, and it says this phrase. Consider Jesus. That's where I'm getting pay attention to Jesus. He's, that's the command in this whole passage. Consider Jesus. So out of this whole sermon, if you leave here today, that's our charge. Consider Jesus. Now we're going to dissect that a little bit. But that's his charge to his readers and it's a charge to us. Consider Jesus. Now the New International Version, I kind of like how it says that. If you have an NIV, I should have wrote it down. But I think it says something to the effect of uh, fix your focus on or fix your attention on Jesus. This, this word consider in the Greek, it had two ideas in the same word. It meant with your eyes, you can physically look at something, you can see it, and then it meant mentally. You have all your attention wrapped up in that thing that you're focused on. So here his charge to these readers and for us today is pay attention to Jesus. Are you fixing your mind's eye? Are you fixing your focus and all your attention, all your life's energy? Is your life everything absorbed with? Is it sort of being like this vortex, sucking everything in your life into one center, and that center must be Jesus? Are you focused, fixing everything on Jesus? That's his charge of them. So let's look at this here. Consider Jesus. Now, I want to pay attention to in verse 1, who he addresses, how he addresses us here. He says, therefore, holy brothers. Now the word brothers, again, it doesn't exclude you ladies. It's brothers and sisters. Some translations say brothers and sisters, so the women are not excluded here. Brothers is more of the idea of brethren, like the gathered group of men and women together. You know, like in English, we just would call a mixed group and say you guys. We don't literally mean all the guys. We just mean everybody together that we're talking to here. But here he says brothers and this word is wonderful because he's getting at something here. He calls the brothers holy. Again, men and women, brothers and sisters here holy. And his idea is, if you are a child of God, if you can say that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, 
there's something wonderful happening here. And if I'm honest with you, I've overlooked something throughout my Christian life, I believe, up until doing this study in Hebrews. And you may say, well, I already knew what you're about to tell me. But let me share with you something to me that stood out in Hebrews here that I've kind of ignored throughout my Christian life. We call Jesus Lord and Savior, and we should. He's God, God of God of all, Lord of lords, God that became man. But look back at chapter 2 with me for a moment and look at verse 11. And it says, for he who sanctifies, that's talking about Jesus who makes people holy. He says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. So that's us. If you're a born again child of God, you are the sanctified. But then he says, all have one source. That is why he, he is Jesus, is not ashamed to call them what? Brothers. And that thought has glossed over me throughout my Christian life. But I just want to point that out because here in chapter 3, he once again says, therefore, holy brothers. And if you link that back to chapter 2, here's something we should think about that to me is so wonderful. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Yes, he is God. But have you ever thought that you also can rightfully call Jesus your brother? That's what he said in chapter 2. The man Jesus that came down, died for our sins, raised again on the third day, has formed a new family of God. And in this family, the Bible says we are his brothers. We are his sisters. He is the firstborn of the dead, and we too will rise again and follow him. Even if we die here, we will live forever with him. And here in chapter 3, verse 1, he's sort of referring back to that, calling us holy brethren, holy family of God, Jesus as our elder brother, if you will. And he calls us holy, meaning, well, our elder brother, Jesus, has made us holy. He's made us righteous before our Father God, so we can stand before him and live with him forever and ever in all eternity. But then he says, we share in a heavenly calling. My translation says share, yours may say partakers, but the word share means it's almost like a business term and you have a business partner and you're, you're joining together in to form a company and to do a business and a job together. They're, they're your business associate, your partner there, and in the same way, he's kind of saying each of us here together, it's like we're a part of the same business. We're in the same job together and we share the load in it. We're partakers, we're sharers of the same thing. And the same thing is a heavenly calling. So what does he mean here? We all, if you're the children of God, the family of God, Jesus is like our older brother, which to me is weird to think about, but that is what he's implying. Our Lord and Savior, yes, but he is like our elder brother. He's made us a family together of brothers and sisters, and we all share together in the same calling God has given us, the call to salvation, the call to service. The call to be saved through Jesus Christ and to serve him as his disciples. Again, just to stress, we're in it together. The Christian life is not meant to be a lone wolf life lived. It's meant to be a family. It's meant to be a family of brothers and sisters serving our Lord together because Jesus died to make us the family of God. Now that bleeds into the church. We're to be a church body that's a family. Family don't all disagree, but family should be united together around their common head, their Lord. So this is who he's addressing. So he's saying, okay, holy brothers and sisters now, those who are in the family of God, we have a command here, consider Jesus. Now, why should we consider and pay attention to Jesus? I told you it's both sight and meditation, your thoughts, 
So the charge then for us is consider or pay attention to Jesus. So as we go through this, what are we putting our focus in? The world offers us many, many alternatives. Many alternatives, I won't go through them, you can think of some. Many alternatives we have to put our focus elsewhere other than Jesus. So here's his argument then. Why should I focus on Jesus then? You could say, well, we're a Christian, that's what we're supposed to do. Yes, but he's going to give some details here. So why should we focus on Jesus? And why should we sort of self-inventory how faithful our faith is in Jesus? So here's how he starts. Look at what he calls Jesus. He says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He calls Jesus those two titles, apostle and high priest of our confession, of our faith. Now, this is interesting. This is the only time, at least that I can find, in the entire Bible where Jesus is ever called an apostle. He's used by many titles, but he's never called an apostle. We think of the apostles as the 12, you know, Peter, James, and John. We think of those guys as the apostles, and that's true. But the word apostle simply meant a messenger sent out on behalf of a king or a ruler. The, here's the real importance of an apostle. They represented the ruler to other people. Now, if you think about that, he's saying, why focus on Jesus? Because Jesus is the one that came down to earth to represent God to humanity. When he spoke, it was the words of God speaking. When he took an action, it was God taking an action. He represented God to humanity. In that sense, he is a type of an apostle. And on the back end, he calls him the high priest. We've been through this, but the priest represented the people to God. So it's a two-way street. Jesus as apostle represents God to us. He brings the message of God to us tells us what God wants us to know, be, and do. And then the other way, he functions as our priest. That's representing us to God. The priest would take the sacrifices and bring them before the altar because the people were sinful and could not approach God on their own. They had to have the priest mediate between them and God. And so here he's saying, okay, well, Jesus is the both apostle, represents God to us, and he represents us to God. He's our high priest of our confession, of our faith. So why focus on Jesus? Because if you are a Christian, if you're a child of God, a part of the family of God, then by definition, you and I cannot put our focus on anyone higher than Christ. If you say you're a person of faith in God here today, then it's just a simple fact that he's bringing out. You and I cannot put our effort, our energy in any higher person than Jesus Christ. None. Because no one else is responsible for your salvation no one else can represent you to God. I mean, I'm your pastor, but I cannot represent you before God. I can't. I don't have that power. I'm not that kind of person. I'm a pastor. A pastor presents the message of God and shepherds God's people, but only Christ can represent you, and I need that same Savior to represent me before God. So in that regard, he says, put your focus, all your energy, on serving and following Christ. No one else, no thing else, can make you or me right with God or before God. The second point of why focus on Christ, he is the model of faithfulness to God. So now then, when we go through this, here's what I'd like you to do. Let's look at what he says about Jesus. And what he's going to do is say, Jesus is a model of a faithful one that served God's bidding, served God's will. And the challenge for us would be, let's follow Christ's example in faithful service to God. So in verse 2, he says, who, now that's referring to Jesus, was faithful to him, that's God, faithful to him who appointed him 
just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So here he's going to start making this comparison between Jesus and Moses, and Jesus is going to come out greater. Moses is still important, though. But again, why focus on Jesus? He is the model of faithfulness to God. And his point is, Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him, just like Moses was also faithful. Why is he bringing up Moses? Again, because you have this idea of Jewish Christians who love and honor Moses, and he's trying to get them to take a hero that they love and honor and say, that hero Moses, who's wonderful, you need to realize something, though, Christ is greater than that. So that's why he's bringing up Moses here. So who was faithful to him, who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house? Now, what house could he be referring to? I believe, simply put, he's talking about Israel from the Old Testament. God built up Israel, his people. That's like his house, his family. The word house here doesn't literally just mean a physical building. It means the family that dwell in the house. So when he, we go through here and he says house, he's really talking about the family that make up the house, that dwell in the house together. In the Old Testament, that was Israel, God's family, God's chosen people. He built them up like a house. Moses was the servant appointed by God to be the one kind of working in that house on behalf of God. So Moses was faithful. God appointed him and he was faithful. But look at verse 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. How can that be? Simple answer. When someone builds a house, which I've never done, but when someone builds a house, in theory, you should put more honor on the builder of the house, not the house itself. Why? Well, logically speaking, the house did not build itself up. I mean, this sounds, you know, dumb, right? But let's think about it. A house does not build itself. It doesn't go to the store and buy all the necessary materials and then construct itself. It doesn't happen. Someone has to build the house by design. So if you compare the builder of the house to the house itself, you should put more glory and honor on the builder than the house itself. So his point is this. Moses was faithful. He was wonderful. He served in God's house. That would be Israel. He was faithful to serve God's will through the house of Israel. But guess what? Moses did not build that house. God built that house. So you don't give Moses the same kind of honor you give God. However, Jesus Christ did build a house. And the house he built today we call the church, the church of God. He died to give life to this church, this family. And in that sense, he's built up the church, the family of God. That's the house of the New Testament. So he's making this comparison to say, give Jesus more honor, glory, and focus. Why? He is a builder. He's not a house. He's the builder of a house. So you give him more glory and honor and weight than you would Moses. So again, reading this again, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So again, the builder has more honor than the house. So then, follow along with me here. It gets a little deep. But he's saying Jesus is a builder of a house. And I'm telling you that house is the New Testament church. Look at verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is who? God. The builder of all things is God. And then he says in verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify, 
to the things that were to be spoken later, verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we'll come back to that in a second. But I just want you to see something here in verse 4. The builder of all things is God. What he is implying is Jesus is also God. Because the builder of all things is God. And Jesus is not a house, nor does he live in a house. He's the builder of a house. And yet he makes this little side note to say, and by the way, the builder of all things is God, implying Jesus is also who? God. So why is Jesus more honorable than Moses? Well, first of all, he's God. Moses wasn't God. And Jesus has built a house. Moses never built a house. He served in a house. So put your focus on Jesus. Why? Well, he's the model of faithfulness to God the Father. So again, I'm trying to stress this point here for us, that Jesus came to this earth as a man and he did serve the Father's will. Yes, he was God, but he came and humbled himself to become a man and he served the will of the Father. What was the Father's will? To come and die for the people's sins, be raised again on the third day, and form a new family of God. He did those things. He was a faithful servant to God. And here the writer says, look, he is our model of faithfulness. Jesus was given a mission by God, a command and a charge, and he faithfully carried that out. He followed through with the Father's will and built up a new house of the people of God. So, again, model of faithfulness. Now then, here's another reason why you should put your focus on Jesus. He is the Son of God, Lord over everything. He's the Son of God, Lord over everything. Look at verse 5. And I should have put this on a slide, I apologize. But if you can picture something with me, picture two charts here, two tables that, that make a comparison left to right. On the one side, put Moses, and on the other side, put Jesus. And he's about to say, let me show you something neat about Jesus. Moses is going to be one way, but Jesus is another way. So look at verse 5. Moses was faithful in all God's house. So he was important, he was faithful, he had a place. But his place wasn't to be the Messiah, he's not the Son of God. But look at the wording. He was faithful in, the word in is the key. He was faithful in all of God's house. And the second word, as a servant. So on the one side with Moses, you would put the word in, I-N, and then you'd put the word servant. And then you would draw a line to the Jesus side, and let's make a comparison. Look at verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house. Moses was faithful in God's house, but Christ is faithful over God's house. Jesus is greater than Moses. Why? Because he's actually in charge of God's house. He's over it all. Moses was not. He resided in it. He was like a manager, yes, but still he resided in the house of God. He wasn't over it. Christ is over it. The second word is he was faithful over God's house as a son, not a servant. So on your chart, you would put Moses was in God's house and Christ is over God's house. And in the second line, you would put Moses was a servant, but Christ is a son. Those are the two comparisons. Christ is greater than Moses. Again, what, for our purposes, why put your focus on Christ? He's the son of God, Lord over everything, because he's the builder of all. He is over God's house, not in it. He's over it, Lord over it all. And he's over it as a faithful son. He inherits it all on behalf of the Father. Moses never did these things as important as he was. Again, he had his place, but his place came and went. And his place was actually preparing the way for Christ to come. So the author's just trying to get these people 
to recognize something that they need to put all their attention and their focus in Christ, not the stuff from the Old Testament, which is important, but it's been fulfilled in Christ. So for us today, you may say, well, we're not Jews probably, and we haven't followed the Old Testament Jewish system and now come to Christ. That's true, but the point still stands. We have to make sure we have our focus on the right things. And the only answer of where you and I should put our focus, our effort, our full attention mentally and physically, emotionally is in Christ. There's no higher being to put your focus in. The apostle and high priest of our faith, he's the model of faithfulness to God the Father. Again, he fully carried out the will of the Lord. And the final thing here was he is the son of God, Lord over everything. Moses was faithful in his house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So Christ models for us faithfulness to the Lord. He's our example to follow in all things. Now, the final point in the message will come at the end of verse 6. So these are why put your focus on Christ. So that's kind of point one. Pay attention to Jesus. Why? He's the model of faithfulness to God. Do what he did. Follow the way that he followed the Lord. Serve the way that he served. He's our apostle and high priest. You cannot put your faith in any higher authority or being no one else can save you make you right with god except christ and that final one there is he is lord overall but here's the final big point i'm going to call it the test and here's the test and he's going to ask a question it's a question i'd ask of each of us today so he gives this analogy of a house let's keep that analogy and say okay are you in god's family today that's his point to them and we'll end with this The test would be this. Are you in God's family? Look at the end of verse 6. Let me read the whole thing. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And here's the, the point. And we, meaning holy brethren, holy sisters, we are his house. That's Jesus's house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So there's a condition here that he ends this paragraph with. He says, yes, Jesus built and made a house by his death, his sacrifice, his resurrection that formed the church, the family of God. But you're not automatically in that family. You don't just get born and you're placed into that that home. The Bible uses languages that, yes, you can be adopted into the family of God. You can become a member of God's family and be a resident in God's house, but you have to have your faith in Christ. You have to have him as your Lord and Savior. And he ends here with saying to these people, you can rest assured you're a part of God's family if indeed this is true about you. You hold fast your confidence and your boasting in your hope. Hope of the gospel, hope of salvation in Christ. I want to look at this for a moment and and we'll be done. So this is the challenge of Hebrews. I said this a few sermons ago, and I just want to mention this again. If you read Hebrews by itself, you could possibly walk away with thinking that you can be saved. We use the word saved, but forgiven of your sins, born again, placed in the family of God. But if you stray so far back into sin, you become unplaced in the family of God. To use common language, some people would say, lose your salvation. I've I've said this before, my grandfather loved him so much, he was a part of a group called Free Will Baptist. Free Will meant they believed you freely could go into Christ and you could freely come out of Christ. 
And he believed this, that if you strayed so far into sin that you lost your salvation, you, you were sort of re-condemned all over again, you had to get re-saved all over again. And we had a lot of debates about this. And I just want to point out here, some of what he would mention is places like this here in Hebrews. Because if you look at it, it says, if indeed, it's a condition, if you press on, if your faith holds strong for the rest of your life, then you have confidence that you're saved. And so he would take this and say, okay, well, what that means is it is possible for you to live your life as a Christian for five years or ten years, but there could be a point in time down the road where you sort of fall away. You sort of drift back away from Christ. You slip into sin or you renounce the faith. You just maybe you outright say you don't even believe that stuff anymore and you just sort of give it all up. And he believed, you know, look, that's what this is saying is the only confidence you can have of your salvation is if you can say, I'm, I'm holding fast every day. I'm, I'm holding on to my faith. But that means I can let go. I don't have to hold on and I can lose it. Now, I don't believe that. And again, I've said this before, our denominational doctrine doesn't believe that. So I want to look at this for a moment because it is important for the point of our message. Because this is the test he does give. There is a warning here for each of us as Christians. He's writing to believers largely here. And he gives them this kind of a warning and says, you need to pay attention to something here. You need to be careful to make sure that your faith is genuine and it's strong and that you hold on to it. Well, does that mean I can lose it? No, it doesn't at all. But it is a valid warning. And here's, here's what he means. So if you look here at the end of verse 6, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, well, what do I get if I hold fast? It, I'm in God's house. I mean, God's family. But he doesn't mean that we're saved by our good works. He doesn't mean that we're saved because of our sincere effort. That's not what he's saying. The word, the phrase hold fast means you take possession of something and you keep it under your guard. So he's telling us you have faith in Christ. That's wonderful. Well, it's as if you need to take possession of it and hold it close to you and don't ever let it go. Keep your faith in your possession, in your grip. We would say in layman's terms, what he's getting at is you need to persevere in your faith. You need to press on for the rest of your life, growing in your faith, never just walking away from it and falling away from it. Well, what about people that do? Because you may know people, unfortunately, that grew up in church, professed Jesus. Maybe they looked really sincere for years of their life, but something happened to them. Maybe a tragedy they lost someone they really cared about or, or something happened to them personally. And they had a trigger moment where they just said, I, I'm not about this anymore. I'm not going to be involved in the church. Don't really care for it. But maybe it goes further than just church. Maybe they've outright said, I, I just don't even believe this Bible stuff anymore. I don't believe this Jesus stuff anymore. I'm, I'm just kind of done with this. I, don't, I know I was raised that way, but I'm not about that anymore. There's scores of people out there like that, unfortunately. The question is, what about those people? Were they truly born again, believers in God, children of God, and at a point in time gave that up. Well, let's look at a passage here. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 4. There's a very important parable Jesus tells that I think answers this question. You're probably familiar with it if you've read your Bible much. It's called the parable of the sower. Jesus in Mark chapter 4 says... Again, he began to teach them beside the sea. A very large crowd gathered about him, so he got into a boat and he sat down. And here's what he teaches them. He tells a story. He says, verse 3, 
Behold, a sower went out to sow. That's sort of like a farmer for their day. They would have their satchel sack of seed, and they would take their hand and they would cast that seed all along the field. They didn't have modern farming equipment. So the farmer's going and he's wanting to plant a crop and he's walking through his farm field, throwing the seed left and right all around him. Well, Jesus said something happens to the seed. It falls on all sorts of different terrain in this field. So he begins with, he says, okay, some of the seed fell along the path. The path is the walkways where the grass is beaten down and it doesn't grow anymore. It's hard dirt. Some of the seed fall on that, but the birds come and eat it. It doesn't get down in the soil and grow, so it's gone. The second type of soil, he says, other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have a lot of soil under it for its roots to go deep. So it sprang up, it grew a little bit, but it had no real root to it. So when the sun and the weather got too hot, it just it died off, it withered away. The next type of soil, he says, well, it fell among thorns and all these uh, type of plants around it that, that choke the life out of the good plant. So it, it couldn't grow up because when it started to grow, then the, the briars and everything just choked the life out of it and it withered away and it died. But then he mentioned in verse 8 of Mark 4, other seed fell on good soil. Now the good soil had no hard, rocky parts to it. It had no thorns and briars around it. It was nice, lush, soft soil, and it was deep. The roots could grow down deep into the soil that made the plant strong and firm, and it could grow up and, and weather the seasons, and it produced its crop. Now notice something here. There are four types of soils Jesus mentioned. The hard path, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the good soil. Only one out of the four was considered good and productive. Now, I don't mean to imply that that means one-fourth out of every profession of faith is real and three-fourths are false. I don't think that was Jesus' point either. But we do need to pay attention to something. And here's the answer, I believe, to our question. What about these people that were in the church? They said they were part of Christ's family and then they walk away. What about them? Jesus said it's actually rather simple. Their heart was never the good soil in the first place. Look at the rest of this chapter and he explains it. Down in uh, verse 14, he says, the sower sows the word. So the seed is, is the gospel going out, the message of God and salvation through Christ. And then he says in verse 15, then you have the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. That was the hard path. They hear the message, and it's immediately gone. It, it did not sink into their heart. And you've all seen this before, and I, I know Denny could probably talk about this working with youth. We would have youth events, and you'd get all these youth in there, and you're sharing the gospel message, you're pouring your heart out. And, and you look, and you just see people so unmoved. Like, how can they be so unmoved with what's happening right now? Because their heart's hard. It's not, it's not good soil. The message is not hitting them. They're hearing it with their ears, and, and they've moved on. Jesus said, that's actually Satan just sort of taking away the, this message. It's not sinking in. Their heart's hard. They're not listening. Then the next ones, though, he says, you have soil that's sown on the rocky ground. And this one hears the message. They hear the word. Immediately, they receive it with joy. And, but they have no root in themselves. And so they, notice the phrase in Mark 4, 17, they endure for a while, for a season. But then when tribulation and persecution comes, they immediately fall away. Jesus did not say that they were truly believers at all. He said they had an emotional response to the gospel. 
they got excited when they heard it. And, and outwardly, they were just super emotional. They were crying. They were real embittered over everything. And they really wanted to come to Christ. And, and it all sounded and looked wonderful. But Jesus said what really happened was it, it was pure emotion. It wasn't real. They didn't mean it with their heart. Because the moment trouble came into their life, they said, no, I didn't mean it. I'm out. They're gone. The emotions worn off as soon as the pressure got on. The next type, he says, in verse 18, the ones that were sown among the thorns, they heard the word. And you could say for a season they grew up too, but verse 19, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things choke the word out and it proves unfruitful. So you have different responses in summary real quick. You have some that hear the gospel and it really sinks in. They had a good soily heart. It produced fruit for life. But what about these that, that they're in it and then they fall away? They were never in it to begin with. That's what happened. Outwardly, it looked like they were. Just like the crop on the rocky soil and the thorny soil, it produced a little crop, but it's only here temporarily. But as soon as the pressure came or other cares of the world, it distracted and pulled them away. They weren't really in Christ to begin with. Now, with that in mind, go back to Hebrews, and I will end on this. At the end of verse 6, he says, Okay, you're a part of God's family, God's house, if something is true about you. If, indeed, you hold fast your confidence and your boast in your hope. What should your hope be? In Christ, in his gospel, for your salvation. So his point is this, then. He's asking us today, How faithful is your faith? Is your faith growing and serving and strong? Why does that matter? Because if it's not, we need to ask a hard question about our faith. Was it genuine to begin with at all? Because here he says, you're not a part of God's house, God's family, unless your faith is, you're holding it fast. You have it every day. It's growing. It's going. You have it for the rest of your life. So my take on this verse about this warning is not that you can lose your salvation if one day you just don't hold on to it anymore. It's, it's rather a warning of, it's God using this warning as a practical means to help the real children of God, those that have real faith, to keep their faith. God uses these passages to guard and protect his true children in the faith. For example, a false convert, so someone who outwardly said they believe in Jesus, but with their heart they never have, so that's a false convert. A false convert will not be concerned about their own perseverance in the faith. They're not going to be concerned about that. However, a real convert, a real Christian, will be concerned about if they're persevering in the faith. So this happened to me one time years ago. I counseled a teenager. She grew up in the church. She was baptized as a child. She came into my office, and she just kept telling me, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm not sure I'm saved. And we spent a lot of time, several meetings, and she was real confused. And finally, I asked her one day, and this was sort of the dividing thing for her. I said, do you care at all about how faithfully you are committed to Christ? She said, no, I don't. Then you were never saved. And she got saved. But that was the question I had to ask, and I ask it of each of us today. He's not giving a warning that you can lose your salvation. He's saying this. Do you today care at all how strong you are in the Lord and how faithful you are? You're growing in your faith. If the answer is yes, then that is a good sign you are really in the household of faith. Because a real child of God will be concerned with how they're living for God.
false convert will show up and leave and not care. A false convert will hear this and say, sounds good, I'm, I'm out. They'll hear the warning and say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm good. A real child of God will read these warnings and say, man, I need to ask myself, am I holding strong in my faith? That is a sign of a true heart in the Lord. What is your hope in this morning, I'd ask us? What is your hope in? What is your confidence in? What do you find your, your honor and your glory and your boasting in life? It cannot be anything short of Jesus Christ and the salvation he's given you. So again, how faithful is your faith? Is it strong? Is it growing? Is it a faith that seeks to serve the Lord? Because again, he's the model of a servant on behalf of the Father. He is our model of what it means to truly carry out the will of God. Is our faith looking more like service to Christ? Again, the challenge for us and his readers, the world offers so many things but our hope can't be in anything else but Christ. I'd ask you this morning, I'm going to have Bruce and his team come. I just want to again say this. If you leave here today, I want you to know if you're a part of the family of God or not. And the only way you can do that is if you have your personal faith in Jesus as your Savior, forgiving you of your sins. And the hope of the gospel is you are saved, you're forgiven. And yes, we will still sin and not lose our salvation, but we will now have a new heart that is concerned to follow our Lord and serve him faithfully. I pray that you know him this morning as your Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the book of Hebrews. It's a very challenging letter at times. It has a lot of deep truths. But I'd ask, Holy Spirit, that in some way you've helped people understand what it means to check our faith and make sure we're being faithful to follow you. Lord, if someone is maybe not sure, if, if they've said, you know what, maybe I have said I'm a Christian, but I've not been focused at all about my faith at all or what it means to serve the Lord. God, would you just convict them that it is possible it is possible that they're a part of the soil that was rocky and thorny it hasn't really sunk in would they square that with you before they leave today in jesus name we pray amen